Champions of Marketing is your guide to the exciting world of business content marketing. Each episode, we bring you the latest content marketing and growth tactics from the most successful startup marketers in the world. Champions of Marketing is sponsored by Content Tools. Content marketing made easy. Hello and welcome to the Champions of Marketing podcast. My name is Chikadi Chima. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm really excited to bring our guest to the show. His name is Sean Ellis. He is the co-founder of growthhackers.com, which is one of the top communities on the web for inbound marketing and all things related to startup growth. We're going to be talking about the content hierarchy, how you can't do growth in private, and investing in words or investing in code in order to grow your online business. So it's going to be a great show. Lots to learn. Thank you again for joining us on the Champions of Marketing podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Champions of Marketing podcast. I'm really excited today. Our guest is Sean Ellis from Qualaroo and Growth Hackers. Now, maybe some of you know about uh, Growth Hackers and some of you don't, but uh, we are very, very fortunate. So, Sean, why don't you give us a little background on uh, what you're working on and uh, how people might know you? Okay, sure. So, um, I, I'll start with kind of what I was doing before I, I founded uh, my current company. I ran marketing at a couple of companies from uh, Customer Zero through um, filing for IPOs. And the second of those companies was Log Me In. And then uh, I realized through, through working with those companies that the uh, really important time in both those companies was kind of figuring out the, the growth model up front in um, you know, just who, who really needed the, the product and how were we going to grow it and what was the business model and all of those things. So from there, I, uh, I went and did six-month interim VP marketing roles with companies like Dropbox and Eventbrite and uh, Lookout and just got a lot of practice on that upfront stage. And then a few years ago, started my own thing. So uh, Qualaroo is um, something that we've we've had out for a few years now, and it's essentially just a, a light surveying tool to help you understand who's on your website and what they're trying to do on your website. So you can target questions directly to people based on a set of rules and uh, then take that data and pump it into some of your other products like uh, Salesforce or Marketo and just be be a lot smarter about how you communicate with with various uh, users on your product. And then growthhackers.com is a, is a site that we launched about a year and a half ago. And um, it was based on my desire to connect with other growth-oriented marketers and engineers and just anybody who's, who's driving growth in their companies, and uh, I didn't have a real good place to do that. So launched it a, a year and a half ago, and um, primarily to have a community that submitted articles that they had found that were interesting about growth and then discussions around those. And increasingly, we've, we've uh, just have people posting direct questions and the community engaging around those questions and do AMAs, so ask me anything with, uh, with like the growth team of uh, Eventbrite a, a, a week ago and different, different people that are really good in, in various areas. So that's I, I balance my time between those two things right now and, uh, and enjoy it a lot. That does sound like quite a handful. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but how, so how do they then uh, contribute back to one another? 
Um, they're pretty isolated from each other right now. So I basically have a team with a general manager and uh, on on Kualaru, who's um, who, so it really runs itself pretty pretty well as a as a group. I mean, not itself. Uh, the the people are running it and doing doing the hard work to to make that work. Um, there's there's some overlap in the in that we use Kualaru on Growth Hackers and. Um, it exposes the community to to the functionality a lot, and that's that's a big part of how we've grown Growth Hack or Qualaru over the years. Is it's got um, branded messaging on on the survey itself that that pops up in the corner of websites, and um, that when it's on a uh, a marketer targeted website, it performs much better than when it's on a non marketed marketer targeted website, which makes sense. Um, and so that one of the benefits for us of having growth hackers is that there's 170,000 people a month that are participating in the community and, and they're all seeing Qualaroo. Um, as we get to know the community better, they get to know Qualaroo as a product that's, that's running on there pretty often. That's outstanding. It sounds really uh, symbiotic as well. Yeah, it is. It's, it, it, it is, but at the same time, the, the two businesses run pretty well independently of each other as well. Cool. Well, that's great. So, um, you said that uh, you have uh, been with uh, two companies that have really achieved phenomenal success, and you were there from customer zero. So, as a marketer, what's the achievement that you're most proud of? Um, I think it's it's really the ability to adapt to different to, to multiple companies. So it's not really like one one individual thing that I'm proud of. It's um, you know, first company that I worked on was a consumer gaming company. And we became the the biggest uh, online casual game site in the world at the time. And uh, and when I was coming out of that company, looking at other marketing roles, people kept kind of typecasting me as someone who would only be effective in a games company. And I really didn't like it that, that they were doing that because it was pretty limiting. And I, I really wasn't that passionate about games. I was passionate about customer growth. And so... Um, Log me in then was more of a B two B. There were some consumer applications to it, but most of the revenue came through through business software sales, and um, so it was great to be able to adjust to that. And then uh, each each additional company that I've gone into has been a, a different set of challenges. There's there's some some similarities, but but in each case, it's it's about figuring out really unique ways to connect with the customers and grow those businesses. And so, I think that's what I'm most proud of is the diversity of of roles and success that we've had in those. Sure thing. So, video games and B two B have uh, quite a divergence between them. So, yeah, it wasn't really it wasn't video games. It was more uh, like game shows. You know, people competing in big big games for cash prizes, probably more like a Zynga today. Okay. But the, uh, still not, uh, not that B2B. Um, yeah. A totally different uh, type of customer. Exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, what's uh, to tell, tell us a little bit about how you came to really recognize your diverse marketing, uh, skill set, you know, when you knew that you could step up to any marketing challenge and, uh, you would be able to figure it out regardless of the, you know, the industry or the, the product. Uh, well, I wouldn't necessarily say that I can figure out any, <laughs> any situation, but I think, um, you know, I, I recognize that, uh, it's a lost cause if, if I'm trying to grow customers for a product that's not very good or isn't needed. So part 
part of what I've done is, is been pretty good at spotting those opportunities and figuring out from the early customer base on a product if it's something that they really value. And then, and then from there, it's, it's just this process of experimentation and just getting to know users and figuring out the most passionate ones and orienting messaging and onboarding and the, the experiments that we're doing around the signals that we get from those most passionate customers. And so I think, uh, I'm probably the, the characteristic of myself that's been most important has just been, you know, a, a will and desire to figure it out and, and drive to figure it out. But, uh, but the, uh, you know, curiosity is a big part of it and just being, being curious about why, why are people signing up for this thing? Why do they keep using it? What, what, um, what, is, what are the most uh, important things they're doing with the product? And kind of within, within the answer to all of those questions, usually you can, you can figure out how to grow a business. That's great. That's great. So maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about your mindset as a marketing newbie and then, you know, what did it take to really find that passion and that curiosity for understanding the user kind of, kind of walk us through that journey. Sure. So my first marketing role I kind of stumbled into. And so for me, when I said that the sort of will and desire to figure it out being important, I, I had invested everything I had into, into that, that game company. Um, and I was only a couple of years out of college. So I had uh, I'd actually even borrowed money to to invest. You know, it was against some sales commissions that I'd had, but I think that's that's the starting point is just being being committed to figuring it out. Like if I didn't figure it out, I was going to be out a lot of money. So I'm glad that worked was, out for you because yeah, you know that that all in model is what everybody does. It doesn't always work out so well. Yeah, but it's still it was it was definitely motivating, and I had. Uh, I, and it was it was at an interesting time. So this was I got started with that company in 1996, and um, yeah, at the time it meant that there was there was not very many people that had a whole lot of experience on the internet marketing. And so what I was looking at was it was a great opportunity to I I definitely saw a big future in the internet, and so that was the reason why in 1995 I had made the investment in this company. Um, but uh, I also saw, I mean, when one of the big benefits that I saw was the ability to target messages and, and track responses and do some things that you really couldn't do very well in traditional media. So my background had been selling advertising in a, in a physical newspaper. And so um, it, but really my strength was more in sales rather than marketing at that time. And so what, what was neat in those early days was that um, it, it Really, the, I think the more marketing experience that you had going into the internet, the more stuff you needed to forget and, and reinvent yourself. And so for me, I think there was a benefit as a, as a newbie of really not having very much experience and figuring out a model based on what made sense for the medium. And, um, and that, uh, that, you know, combined with the drive of if I don't figure this out, I'm going to be screwed so <laughs> financially. So... I think those those two things really helped me a lot as a newbie to where I and then just just also knowing that um, no you know being confident that this was going to be an important an important field in an important emerging medium and that I had as good a chance as anybody to be to be one of the best in the world at it and that that was something that I had um, set a desire to do right from from kind of day one and. Uh, 
and it was it was fun to um, it was fun to, to to try to realize that. And twenty years later, almost you're still standing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, then that that first company was just such a great run because obviously, 1996 is um, we, we, as the internet was just taking off like that. That was a great time to be just getting into the internet, and um, but we we were competing. That, that company actually started out of Eastern Europe, and and uh, I I had moved to Eastern Europe right out of college, and so um, was not your sort of traditional company. And we were competing against um, Sony was one of the leaders in the game space at the time. They had Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune and all their television game show formats online, and then. Uh, Yahoo emerged within within a couple of years as as big funded companies, and there was some Kleiner Perkins back companies. So you, you had a lot of money pouring into that space, and then we were this uh, this little company founded out of Budapest, Hungary, and uh, it was it was interesting to to ultimately find a way to beat all of these guys and become number one in that in that space at the time when uh, when we were, were just so constrained on resources, but we. We came up with some really creative ways to grow that business as a result of those constraints, including we had the first embeddable widget that I've ever heard of that, that spread virally. So it was really similar to how a YouTube video gets embedded. We were doing that in 1997 where we had games that could be embedded into sites and then people could grab that game and put it onto their own site. And we spread to 40,000 websites carrying our games and tied in an affiliate program with those and just did a lot of things that were sort of breaking out of the mold of some of the companies that were just pouring only money into online advertising. We, we figured some different ways to, to leverage the medium and, uh, and, and grow, I think, a, a lot more effectively than they were doing. I'm going to guess you guys were also very good storytellers. I think we were, we were good storytellers in the sense that we, we realized that you know, every customer that we acquired, we needed to tell a story to them. We, we weren't so big on the, on the sort of, uh, on the sort of like PR kind of angle of storytelling. But in w- what we were really good at was basically getting somebody to start a gameplay experience and then very naturally progress them from a gameplay experience that started on one website to before they knew it within, 10 minutes they're playing against a thousand other people in a game on our website and, and really being able to have something that kept them engaged every step along the way to where, to where they got the big deep experience that meant that they were likely to keep coming back and become an active member of that community. Wow. That is, that's, I mean, myself, I was a sophomore in high school, I think in 1996 and uh, we're still using AOL at the house. So it's really just remarkable to think back uh, to where I was at that point and to, you know, the, to hear that you were in business and, you know, already working on viral marketing. In, yeah, uh, we, were, we were selling into a, in a pretty small internet population at the time with some big constraints because a lot of people were on AOL and connecting over 28 baud modems, uh, you know, through their, through their telephone. And, uh, but we had, we had awesome engineers that were able to, to, to do this. And that was, that was really where I ended up, how I ended up pushing to do these embeddable games was that our big advantage relative to the U S companies was that we had just excellent engineers in Eastern Europe and trying to find a way to leverage that strength into our marketing and not just on the product side, like, uh, like that had gotten to us to a point of having a better product than most people. But how could, how could we actually 
take advantage of that in our in our growth strategy, and it, it ended up working really well. That was really that's quite something. So you say it wasn't until Qualaroo um, that you really got into marketing. Uh, tell us or content marketing rather. Do you want to tell us how this kind of uh, uh, dawned on you? Yeah. So well, it's interesting. So you could sort of say I didn't get into it until Qualaroo, but one of the ways that we grew Log Me In was really, I think, a form of content marketing, which is freemium. So yeah, to me, I, I think of, uh, you know, you can, you can write content that can spread on the internet or you can write code that can spread on the internet. And so for, for us, you know, Log Me In was, we ended up getting 100 million people that, that installed the software across all these different devices to give it remote access. And most of them were on a free version. So in a sense, I would say that's kind of a form of content marketing. But at, at, uh, when, once we launched Qualaroo, I, you know, had a, had a challenge like you do with every company of figuring out how, how to grow it and, uh, and put my head together with the team of just figuring out what, what's it going to take. And the first thing that we did, and I, I advise everybody to do this is, Look at other people in your category and try to figure out how are they growing and making sure that you're you're at least putting a chip on those things. And so when I looked around at how other marketing tools and products were growing, a lot of them were very active with uh, with content marketing. And so um, that's that's when we started doing a lot of content marketing. Um, in fact, even growthhackers.com was, uh, was part of that initiative. It was trying to create a platform so that we could grow off of other people's content. Hmm. So basically leveraging the energy and the effort that other people had done to, uh, and adding value to it. Cause you're exactly. So if we, if we have a, if we can build a community around, other people's content and then we host the discussions we get just, just as much benefit as if we were creating the content ourselves and we did create some content ourselves in there especially in the early days but um but you know i I've, i figured that again it's sort of this invest in words or invest in code in our case we invested in the code to create the platform that would host everybody else's content and including our own content and that in doing that, it was something that we could we could scale a little more easily and predictably than our ability to constantly try to crank out good content, which is which is pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but when you have the entire internet coming up with good content, you only have to surface the best of it. Exactly, and so anybody could submit content from around the web related to growth, and then the community itself would vote up the best content and discuss it and. We, we really partnered then with the content creators because they were excited that we got a lot more eyeballs on their content and, uh, and the users benefited and, and we benefited. So it's definitely, and, it, and, and part of it was when we started creating our own content, we thought, man, how do we, how do we shine when there's so much good marketing content already out there and a lot of bad marketing content too? Are we, how, how, do we, how do we jump into that fray? And, the, and part of what we decided to do was, was to, to put the community out there as part of that. Mm. So 20 years and now um, Growth Hackers is quite, uh, for people who are into content marketing and inbound marketing, anything really having to do with user acquisition, Growth Hackers is one of those must-reads and must-visit sites. But um, I'm sure it wasn't always that way. Do you want to share with us one of your most painful 
marketing mistakes, one of your biggest failures um, in your in your history? Uh, hmm. I think you know one one of the the challenges of uh, of big marketing mistakes. I think most marketing mistakes are when you blindly get super excited about an idea and implement it, and then uh, put a lot of resources be- behind it, only to find out that it didn't work. Um, so for me, I've always been extremely experimental in the type of stuff that I'm doing. So even even at one point, you know, I said that we used these embeddable games as a big part of our growth in the early days at at Uproar, was that game company. Um, we we still spent you know twenty million dollars a year on on uh, on display advertising, but I used to drive my agency crazy because I said I. On that twenty million dollar budget, I didn't want to do any first time campaign for more than five hundred dollars. So <laughs> imagine that's a, twenty that's million dollars, five hundred dollars at a time. <laughs> exactly. So we we never made a bet bigger than five hundred dollars on a new campaign, and we had enough leverage because we had the, the depth of funds there. But um, I that that's just an example of I I make a lot of really small bets, and then when they pay off, I double down, and and so. There's not a lot that I regret because because if if it's something's not working, I, I I do something else pretty quickly. So how did you cultivate that mentality then of making such small bets and such small investments to to figure out what is working? Um, you know, it's uh, part of the benefit of cult or the the ability to cultivate that is because I've always been on the ground floor of brand new companies, so. Um, you know, there's not a lot of culture to change. So it's just everybody understands that if I can, if I can learn if something works for $500, why would I spend $5,000 to learn it? Like it just, that's just being lazy, right? Like if I, if I have a Ted, if I have a say $20,000 testing budget and I do one campaign to learn, or I can, I can do 40 in, in a month to figure out what works, I'm, I'm just going to get so much further ahead, dividing that into the smallest chunks to, to learn what I need to do. And so I never really had much trouble convincing people besides the agencies themselves that, um, that that was the way to go. That makes a lot of sense. That's uh, so basically being early in the game allows you to kind of subdivide and, and, uh, divide and conquer basically. Yeah, and and just and have a really flexible culture inside inside a business by being in, in in a business in the early days. So that was one of my stated goals when I went in and did my um, my interim VP marketing roles at, at Dropbox and Eventbrite was was to create a you know experiment driven culture, a testing and, and metrics driven culture, and um, and that was again one of the big beauties is there was eight other people at Dropbox when I was there. So it's, it's not too hard to, to you know, introduce that when, <laughs> when everybody else was just building product. Mm. So then how would, how would you say that, uh, you know, getting back to content and, and online marketing, how would you recommend that people create a culture of experimentation with their, uh, content marketing? Um, I, so like one, one thing that I love to do with content marketing is, um, is send a tweet out first. And if I, if I send a tweet out that gets a lot of engagement and interest around an idea, so like a small, 
just a, a small nugget of idea, kind of almost the headline for an article that I want to write, and it gets a lot of engagement on it, then I know I'm much more likely to write an article that's going to get a lot of engagement. But if I write a tweet on something and, you know, say, I can, I remember a, a, a tweet a while back where I said, conversion rate formula is simple. Desire minus friction equals your conversion rate. And like a whole, whole bunch of people got excited about that. Then, then I know there's a whole blog post that I can write about that. But if I had just, if I wrote that and put it out and, and nobody responded or, or, you know, engaged with it, then why would I spend all the time writing a big piece of content around that same concept? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that before, but I've also experimented with it. And I think, uh, probably testing it at, you know, eight thirty at night is not the best time. So do you have a, a you know, a methodology to ensure that you are going to catch people when they're, when they're paying attention? Well, so part of it is you got to have a pretty big personal following to do that. Um, you know, if you get 150 people following you on Twitter and then no one engages, like you, you don't have much of a footprint to work with. Yeah. There's, I mean, you don't, you don't have 150 people following. You have 10 people that you got that tweet in front of, you know, cause there's the, just the nature of Twitter. Most people aren't going to see it when you put it out there, most of your followers. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's just the realization that, uh, that, you know, first and foremost, you sort of need that, you need that, that testing pool before you can put those things out there. And, uh, you know, so if you've tried it before, I'm just not sure. Maybe you already had the big testing pool and then, yeah, getting the time of day, right. Maybe sending the same tweet four times, over over a period of time to see if people engage on it or you know see seeing a, a contact who you think would be interested in, in that and and who's got a really big following who might give you a retweet or whatever it might be um, but yeah you got to you got to get it out there with with a reasonable amount of uh, reasonable amount of exposure before you can really get feedback that's worth acting on all right and so then for for a business who's maybe not so active on Twitter. Um, but they want to experiment with content marketing. What are some other simple experiments that they can run? So I, another thing I used to do a lot was uh, I would start my blog posts on Quora. And because, you know, a blog post should answer a question for someone, I think a good one, at least the type of blog post that I like to read and like to write. And um, if, if people ask a question and then I start writing the answer and it's more than a paragraph, then I – then I quickly say, okay, I know somebody's interested and I know I'm inspired enough to very easily write one paragraph. Why don't I just, why don't I just convert that one first paragraph into a longer form blog post on this topic? Very cool. Very cool. And then I, and the other piece that I found was when I was meeting with a lot of startups and, and founders, um, I, I was a lot more inspired to, to blog because I could find what are the things that I believe that they are, are less convinced about. And, mm. and then in the process of writing a blog post, I would be able to articulate my, my position a lot better. And then when I talked about it, I could talk about it better as well. So as an advisor and consultant to a lot of companies, I found that my, my inspiration for blog posts was way higher than when I was, uh, when I started my own company and I was just basically heads down in the business all the time, it's, I don't get exposure to as many people on the outside to kind of trigger, 
trigger the inspiration. It's one of those things that you just don't know. Are you are you writing a blog post trying to explain to the world that the sky's blue and everyone's looking at it saying, "Of course it's blue." We we just look up and see it. So. You know, finding what you strongly believe in and other people don't believe in is a big part of, of writing a blog post that's interesting. And for me, that, that started with me talking to people and trying to help them and finding the things that were hardest to get them to buy into led to generally some really good blog posts. So you're saying that by being out there and engaging with people regularly and having to make a strong case for a point of view that you have – it, it really creates the, the most valuable and best content. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that definitely helped me. So kind of like your real life FAQ. Yeah, in a sense. In fact, one of my most popular blog posts I, I wrote was on a vacation that I came back from after I'd been doing that for a long time. And it was really, it was like a real life FAQ. What it, what it started out as was, over the next, and so this is where storytelling comes in. Over the next year, what do I hope next year at this time that people think of me when they when they uh, are are thinking of my uh, you know what I stand for what yeah, for from a uh, blogging perspective? Sorry, my computer just went into pause. There we go. Um, so from a from a blogging perspective, what what is what is the brand that I really want to put in front of people so that they they understand these are my key beliefs this is how I think you should approach things and so I started to kind of write this whole personal fact around the things that I that I care a lot about and I'm trying to communicate and next thing you know again it was like why am I just writing this for myself why don't I just write this whole thing and put it out and then deep link into into you know, blog post where I've already gone deep on any one of those subjects, but it, it, it then kind of became a reference post for for a whole bunch of other posts, but but could could boil it out to a forest view rather than you know down down in the weeds. I'm sure it's really nice too. You can you know if somebody asks you a question and you're like, well, you know, I wrote a blog post about this. I'd love to. Yeah, I do that all the time. That's a nice shortcut. <laughs> so um, so you said Quora, which is the question and answer website, is a good place to to uh, you know answer people's questions, and then from that answering, you know, if you continue to be inspired, then you you have a pretty good indication that you have a a blog post worth writing. You have content that you know somebody's already asked the question. So if one person asks, a hundred people or a thousand people have the same question. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think another thing that's kind of interesting, if you, if you think about sort of a hierarchy of content, that a tweet is this really tight little piece of content. And if you're saying, gosh, I, I really wish I could write a whole paragraph on this, which is often the case with a tweet, then all right, I'm going to send the tweet out. If it gets any bites, I'll write the full paragraph. And then a Quora answer might be a paragraph, for example. Or we have our own Q&A on, on growthhackers.com. So the same same kind of thing. And then if I'm finding that that paragraph, I'm still inspired, then I can write a full blog post. And sometimes, sometimes you could even differentiate between a blog post and an essay and an essay might be, might be, you know, 20 paragraphs <laughs> versus, versus a blog post being like three or four paragraphs. And then and you can even take it all the way to a book. But if you, if you kind of just sort of look at these, at these different sizing of, of thoughts and content that might be useful for people. You can make those smaller investments at the tweet level 
all the way to I published I did publish actually a book with with Morgan Brown that became a bestseller and it was actually just a collection of these growth studies that we had written so um, it did sort of you know thematically meant that we could put together a lot of work that we'd already done into into a book format that was really cool yeah so so basically there's you say there's different units of of content and uh, different engagement levels that people have with it. Um, right. Like each unit is, is essentially you can test for demand for that topic and desire to write more on that topic. And, and when you find the intersection of something where there's a lot of interest and demand, and a lot of desire from you to write more, that's a lot better than going from the perspective that a lot of people do with content marketing where it's like, oh, I need to write – I need to write 20 posts a month to get that repetition that's going to build the habit of bringing people back. But if you're just purely doing it around sort of post volume, the likelihood that you're going to be passionately writing posts is, is pretty tough. Hmm. So you need to have a few tentpole kind of content items and, and do more tests just to make sure that you're, you're going in the right direction. I think, or you need to, or you need to basically step, up that if you if if you only write when you're inspired to write then I mean part of it is you got to do those little bite-sized chunks to lead to that inspiration and that's the input that leads to the output at the volume that you want and if you're not creating enough volume yourself doing that then maybe you bring additional people in to repeat the same process until as a company you're putting out the volume that you feel like you need to to build an audience gotcha gotcha Okay. So on that topic, what are some of the mistakes or inefficiencies that can kill content marketing? Yeah. I, yeah. I think that the biggest one is just, you know, not, not being quality focused that I think once you, once you lose someone's trust once, it's really hard to regain it. You know, maybe you can write one blog, bad blog post and I'll give you another shot if you'd written one that they really liked before. But if, if you're wasting their time with, with two or three blog posts, the likelihood that you're going to get them coming back, like you're doing more damage with each one of those low-quality blog posts than maybe, maybe from a SEO perspective or some other things that you, you're reaching new audiences. But just like with, with community building or a SaaS product or, or anything else, if you're not retaining a, a customer base or an audience base – then it's really hard long-term to grow if you're just replacing time after time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and you retain that. with quality. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you attract with some of the SEO and the keywords, but then you also want to make sure that you are a trusted authority and, and you are placing a high value on the time of the reader. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you'd say that then um, getting, so, so you're saying that, um, if you, as the owner, the founder of a company or, you know, principal don't have time to, to invest in this quality, then it's really important that you f- bring in somebody else that can, can repeat the process. So what are some of the things yeah, that, uh, people. you know, cause, cause yeah, exactly. a lot of times people definitely say the company has my voice and I want to, I want to m- make sure that my voice is retained. So then how do you balance those two where there's a, a company voice, right? And maybe it comes right from the founder, but then there's also the very real 
need to service existing customers, find new customers and all the other things that, that, you know, uh, come along with being the captain of the ship. So how, how do you kind of balance those responsibilities? Um, well, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm going to take that a l- little bit different direction because I was at a, I was at a conference on Friday and somebody from, from a really big company, one, one of the biggest companies out there pulled me to the side for a second and said, I'd like to get my, I'd like to get my engineers doing more blogging for me. How do I, how do I tell them to do it and get them excited to do it? And, um, that's kind of in lines with what you were just asking, but I, my advice to him was, you know, he was essentially just saying, I'm just going to appoint them and make them do it. Um, my advice to him was that I've, I've actually had engineers come and write from my team who were super excited to, to, to do it, but they had to be passionate about the, the, what they were writing about. And so what I suggested to him was to start with a, start with a discussion of what do people not understand about us that they should and what, what do we wish that they understood and share some, share some research on, on, on like current perceptions of the business and that kind of thing and find out who's, ta- who's passionate about certain topics and then separately ask them afterwards, hey, would you mind writing about that? I love the way you express this. And now suddenly you're, you're finding those pockets of passion so that as, as a company – you can then put out stuff that people are passionate about. But I just think, I think if you're not passionate about the topic and you're just going through the motions of writing that you're doing more damage than good. So it's got to start with the passion first. Exactly. And so you have to be proactive about, you can't just wait for that inspiration to come. You have to be proactive about engaging with your audience, about engaging with employees who could potentially write about this, engaging with outside influencers who could, who could, uh, you know, write about or communicate about, about something that aligns with your product. But, um, you know, so there's a lot of things that you can do that get the point of discovering who's passionate about what topic. But, um, I think that the biggest problem that I see with content marketing is that it's a, it's a pure numbers game for a lot of people. And I've, I've gotten caught in that a bit in the past and you just can't do it. I think you have to, you have to be genuinely passionate about what you're writing about for other people to be passionate about it. And if they're not passionate about it, there's just too much stuff out there for them to, to read stuff that they don't care about. Totally agree. Totally agree. So then, you know, in terms of, um, the content marketing and storytelling, um, at this uh, very professional business level, where do you go for inspiration? Like what are some books or blogs that people can check out that have had a real impact on you? Um, you know, for me, it's more about looking at, looking at companies who I think are doing a good job with, with content marketing that inspires me a lot. So I I would say, you know, a HubSpot, I think does a great job or Kiss Netflix does a great job. Um, that's, that tends to be where, where I, where I look for the inspiration. So those are p- people who are doing it at a high level. And then yeah, exactly. are there any Kinda books that, uh, their processes? Oh, so, so he's studying the process. And do you also try to sometimes reverse engineer what, uh, these, these people that you look up to have, have created? Absolutely. And in, in fact, that's, that's where I would say a lot of the passion for some great content has, has come from my team and myself is because that's, that's, all the content that we put out on growthhackers.com, the only original content we put out 
is reverse engineering how companies are growing because that's that's an area of passion that I have anyway. I would want to do it anyway, and if I can do it and write about it, and if my team can do it and write about it, we love doing that. And so, and because we love doing that, we're able to put out really good, really good articles about you know the the, the benefit of of growth is that you can't do it in private. Like every company is is marketing themselves through a series of public touch points, and if you just take the time to add those touch points together as well as you know, any interviews that people have done in the past in the, from the company, even talking to potential customers and asking how they discovered it, that you're able to get a pretty good picture of how a business is growing. And when you, when you do that, you're going to be inspired about how to grow your own business. And so that's, that's an example of what we've done is, is reverse engineer how companies are growing. And one of the ones that we did was HubSpot, which is part of part of why I respect them so much because I, uh, around the uh, content marketing pieces, because I, I, I learned what they were doing in that area. That's so cool. So, so, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, they say in writing too, is, uh, if you want to write a good book, uh, maybe you need to sit down at your computer or your typewriter and just type up the book that you admire most from start to finish so that you have that sensation of, writing a good book, even though it's not your own material. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, um, he said it, it really comes down to having a passion and then, you know, maintaining that relationship of trust with each individual user. And rather than focusing on the volume of content, it's really about, uh, you know, having the, the best content you can each time you, you step out. So, you know, if you were to leave, uh, leave us with one final piece of advice. What would you say is um, one thing to keep at the front of your mind as you know you're you're entering this content marketing process and and really trying to tell your story directly to uh, your customers and your users? What, what's what's the most central thing to you every day that you that you want people to know? Yeah. So so I would say that that the the desire to put out a high volume of content is the right desire, but the result is often the wrong result. And so you can't just, you can't just put it out. What you have to do is, is put your effort into the things that lead to high quality content. And that's, and that's what we've talked about a lot today is just making sure that you do a lot of engagement with your target customers or target audience and, and find out what, what do you think differently? Because it, it, it has to be somewhat interesting. If you're just saying things they already believe, that's going to get pretty boring for people. So finding out the sort of voids in their knowledge of where you can passionately try to make a case for something that they may not believe in. Um, if you can't create enough volume that way, do these mini posts that I talked about, starting from a tweet to an answer on a Quora question to things that ultimately work their way up to a volume of, of content that you can get passionate about. And then if you're still not creating enough volume, try to get a group of other people to replicate that same process. And that eventually, eventually you're going to create the volume, but if you're not quality focused, you're not going to retain an audience. And if you don't retain an audience, you're not going to grow an audience. It's just impossible long-term to do that. So find a process, get Put your heart into it and then also find ways to expand to uh to incorporate other voices into the you know that passion process yeah 
That's fantastic. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your generosity and your wisdom. Um, I definitely learned a lot. That's one of the things I really enjoy about being part of this. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that everybody who gets the chance to tune in is going to have a lot to, uh, a lot to chew on. So if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So my, my Twitter handle is just at Sean Ellis and, uh, S E A N. Uh huh. S E A N E L L I S. And I will, uh, I keep an eye on it. Thank you so much. Really do appreciate your time. Again, uh, our guest is Sean Ellis from Growth Hackers and Qualaroo. He's been doing internet marketing from the mid-90s until today. So there are very few people in the world who can say they've got an almost 20-year history online. Uh, check out growthhackers.com definitely for the top information about inbound marketing, content marketing, SEO, anything having to do with growing a business online, you're going to find it there. Sean, thank you so much. Um, wish you uh, continued success and uh, we really do appreciate your time. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the champions of marketing podcast brought to you by content tools at content tools. We fuel your business growth with efficiently automated content marketing plan and schedule the content you need. We take care of the rest. Research, copy editing, SEO, and more. Visit our blog at contenttools.com and subscribe to our email newsletter to receive the latest marketing hacks from the industry's rising stars. Content Tools, content marketing made easy.